If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arroway. We're here in Brooklyn, as usual, at Roberta's Pizza, and it is Sunday, uh, January uh, 22nd, also known as Day 3 of the End of the World. I'm just kidding. Uh, Not really. Um, Of course, this weekend we saw the inauguration of a new administration, a new president, And uh, we also saw um, many protests uh, in about 600 cities around the world um, on Saturday. The Women's March is plural, and uh, at least I was joined by some 400, uh, an estimated 400,000 folks in New York City to... uh, to March, and uh, I'm actually I'm, I, th- I feel like a lot of people are just feeling a collective sort of hangover of <laughs> of just all this energy that was poured out and expressed and um, shared and uh, over the weekend. So um, I hope that uh, many of you guys are are now hopefully relaxing and uh, taking it easy. Um, we have lots of work to do, but um, I'm really excited to be talking with a guest who. <laughs> um, it, Okay, I, I'm just, I'm laughing right now because I'm imagining my guest today is maybe like wringing his hair out, um, <laughs> thinking about the next administration and our new EPS chief and so forth. But um, he is the author of a book called Food Fight, GMOs and the Future of the American Diet. Um, he's also a professor of English and uh, at a University of Delaware. He's also written about uh chemicals in our everyday products in his last book, Contamination. So I'm really pleased to welcome McKay Jenkins on the show. How are you, McKay? I'm very, very good. Thank you for calling. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. And uh, I'm really glad that you could uh, join us to talk about this book. And um, I'm sorry to have such a doomsday sort of (laughs) intro to it. But, uh, (laughs) you know, what are your thoughts? I'd love to, you know, there's so much to go over in this book that is just, it's just wonderfully um, written, I have to say. I learned so much. It wasn't over my head. I don't think it's, it'll be, you know, I think it's really accessible for anyone who's coming into um, these topics at any point uh, of view, but also at any kind of place of knowledge. Um, but I'm curious, though, what you make of uh, what the next four years will hold for food policy. We have some new folks in the cabinet. We've got a new... Um, uh, Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson. We've got this guy um, Pruitt, Scott Pruitt, for the EPA, who has sued the EPA many times. Um, you know, I know you write about uh, um, a lot of these things in a, a lot of the major conglomerates that are that are d- uh, designing our chemicals, but also our food. So, uh, what do you think is in store for us? And what do you think, as uh, consumers or just people? eaters and so forth, what, what should we look out for and what should we be doing? Well, you've asked the, uh, the fundamental question, I think, and I'm, I'm so glad you asked it that way because there's 
an awful lot to talk about, but really it all devolves down to, uh, in my view, kind of industrial control of very intimate things in our lives. So you mentioned this book, Contamination. I wrote about the presence of synthetic chemicals in virtually all consumer products that we use. This book, Food Fight, about GMOs, is about the presence of synthetic chemicals, namely herbicides and pesticides, along with genetically engineered seeds that are all going into our bodies through virtually every meal that we eat. And the ironic thing, or the the coincidental thing, is that most of those things, the the chemicals that go into our consumer products and the chemicals that go into our food are all, one way or another, manufactured by the same Mm. half-dozen companies. And uh, this is, you know, people, there's lots to talk about with GMOs, and, and lots of people have very strong feelings about it, but the truth is not many people actually know a great deal about the complexity of the GMO debate. It's a very complicated mm-hmm. one that includes yeah. difficult science, but it also includes a lot of difficult politics. And I think, you know, kind of teasing out each of those things is worth doing to understand really where we stand. And, and then make better decisions about how you want to conduct your life, not just how you eat, but how you want to, you know, shop for everything else that you need to buy, because they're really all connected. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting. When you first answered that question, it occurred to me that, you know, your last book, whether we're not, we're talking about GMOs, maybe organic versus, you know, uh, I don't know, organic versus conventional uh, pesticides or you know, chemical sprays in your couch or something, we're all circling around the same problem, which is these controlling conglomerates, um, the forces that be in the, the tricky politics behind them. Um, Yeah, that's right. And and the thing is that there is politics and economics behind that, but there's also some kind of, uh, don't you call it philosophy or existential questions? Because uh, yeah. one of the reasons that we are dependent on these companies to provide us all these things is because we have long since lost our own capacity to provide them for ourselves. And the way, you know, in, in Food Fight, there's a whole chapter in there about the way that in the structural ways that industrial food got going. And I, I always like to think that it started with the construction of the interstate highway system after World War II because you suddenly had huge roads connecting all the big cities in the country designed initially to defend ourselves against possible invasion. But what Mm -hmm. an unintended consequence was is it allowed us to construct these monumental suburbs around every city uh, that we had. And so then suddenly people are pouring out of the cities, building houses out in the the countryside. And people forget Mm -hmm. that we didn't have suburbs before World War II. What we had were cities and we had farms. And then when we suburbanized, we built all these houses on this open land, which meant that I think since 1930, the United States has lost 4 million small family farms. Mm. So where we once were able to provide ourselves with, I mean, we we didn't call it local food, we just called it food. But now all the food production has migrated out to the part of the country that was not subjected to all that suburban sprawl. So you have these gargantuan farms out in the Midwest. There's something like 300 million acres of monoculture grain right now in the United States. That's mostly corn and soybeans, which is almost all GMO. And wheat, of course, which is not, some people may be surprised to know that wheat is not yet GMO, although virtually all corn and soybean is. So now that is why we eat the way we do. It's not just that industries are somehow malevolent. It's that we've evolved to depend on them to feed us. And they Mm -hmm. feed us with fast food and processed food and junk food and soda and cheap, 
hamburgers and all that. That's the way we've come to eat. But it all goes back to the way that we basically built the infrastructure of our country. So food follows infrastructure in this way. Yeah, I, I remember the Eric Schlosser pointing that out in um, uh, Fast Food Nation, another great book. That's, that's just fascinating. I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn, as you describe in this book, that you know the GMO... Uh, let's say, revolution in our food system is fairly new. Um, and if you don't mind, McKay, I'd love to read from your pro- prologue um, sure. just to kind of give people a, a real, yeah, I don't know, kind of visceral glimpse at to what we're talking about. So you're right. Back in 1994, when I was pulling down eight bucks an hour grading papers and teaching college students how to read, a friend told me about a can't-lose investment scheme that was sure to lift me out of my economic doldrums. Square tomatoes. They're going to be great, he said breathlessly. They're engineered by scientists. They they ripen faster, stay ripe longer, and because they're square, they can be stacked for shipping, which will bring down shipping costs. It's like scientists have taken nature and made it better. Um, The product in question turned out to be the Flavor Saver Tomato, a newfangled plant designed by a biotech company called Calgene. The tomato was designed to plug into an industrial food system that was rapidly replacing traditional farming practices more vulnerable to the whims of nature. The Flavor Saver ripened rapidly on the vine but would not rot, which meant it would be tough enough to survive against mechanical harvesting and the thousand-mile truck to market. Um, Okay, so... And then I'm going to skip ahead and you write, now more than 20 years later, these moribund tomato experiments seem almost quaint. Uh, You described some other uh, tomato uh, genetic engineering projects. Um, You write, today nearly all of our calories, that is to say nearly all of our food, are grown from genetically modified plants. Chances are that that three-quarters of everything you put in your mouth today, the eggs, the yogurt, the cereal, the chicken sandwich, the tortilla chips... The mayonnaise, the salad dressing, the cheeseburger, the french fries, the soda, the cookies, the ice cream were processed or fed from plants grown from seeds engineered in a laboratory. Same for the food you feed your baby and the food you feed your dog. So this is like, just like has completely swept something that you saw inklings of um, or like the fledgling sort of baby steps of and you sort of thought not, not too much about it. Um has really taken over. Um, I should mention also that you that you mentioned a um, you started hearing stories about another tomato um, created with the DNA from Arctic flounder, so that yeah, the idea was that the the tomato would resist cro- uh, frost and cold storage. Correct. And this made you feel a little uneasy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh... Okay, so where to start? So one of the things that you'll notice from the list of foods that contain GMOs that you just read is that Mm -hmm. it includes very, very little fresh produce. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that that people new to the GMO question don't realize is that there are very few GMOs, if any, in the actual fruit and mm -hmm. vegetable aisle. So you think GMO, you think all food is genetically engineered. That really is not true. In fact, a tiny fraction of the number of plants out there are genetically engineered. The trouble is that a vast majority of the food we eat is genetically engineered. So how does that, how does that equate? How do you, how do you make, come up with that math? The reason is that we eat almost exclusively food that is built out of two grains, three if you include wheat, but let's just say corn and soybeans. Corn and soybeans can be primarily fed to animals. So I think in the United States every year, we slaughter on the order of 9 billion uh, chickens, 
hogs and cows to feed our bottomless desire for cheap meat. So a lot of that is fast food hamburgers, obviously. So all those animals are fed this commodity grain Mm -hmm. instead of, as we all know from other research that cows are supposed to be eating grass, not corn, but we feed them corn because it's cheaper to grow and it's subsidized by the the federal government and all that. So we're eating these GMOs through all the meat that we eat. But all the fast food, you take corn and soybeans and you can reconfigure it into any number of different kinds of products, but they're all the ones found in the middle of the supermarket, so they're not found in the vegetable aisle. So if you want to take one step towards avoiding GMOs, a good place to start is actually eat vegetables, which is ironic because people think, oh, they we're talking about plants. Right, I'm scared, yeah. Of... Yeah, but it's really not oh, okay. the produce section that, that should worry you. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that a lot of people are also confused because uh, when they think of genetically, mod- uh, you know, engineered or modified, um, let's let's unpack this idea. Actually, let's step back because there's traditional plant breeding or crop breeding. Um, you know, so if I want to make a nectarine or something that tastes a little bit more like a kumquat <laughs> or something like that, or come nectarine, something like that, um, you would do traditional plant breeding. So what is the difference? Is there a huge difference between that and taking a seed that is genetically modified with a fish or whatever, maybe it's a kumquat, and, um, and breeding that way? Well, I think that question depends on who you ask. I mean, ah. if you ask a plant geneticist, they would say there's very little difference. What there is is a much more efficient way of getting to the same end result. So, you know, you can crossbreed and it can take you 20, 30, 40 years, or if you're thinking about really old traditional breeding, it'd take a much longer time because, you know, nature through mutation and through cross-pollination, you know, it it creates this great diversity of of plants. Now, you can see no company wants to wait 50 years to come up with a new plant. So what they've figured out is that you can go in there with, you know, human ingenuity and manipulate genes. And they've, they've manage that in all kinds of ways. And in the food business, they are able to take a plant and find a gene that, for example, and most famously, will make a particular crop resistant to a poison. So let's just say we're talking about something known as glyphosate, which the public knows as Roundup, which is the most kind of ubiquitous herbicide that you can buy. You can buy it in a hardware store, but farmers use it in great quantities. Now, if you can create a corn plant that will resist glyphosate, or you can create a soybean plant that can resist the spraying of glyphosate, even though this this poison may kill every single other plant on your property, then you've got something to be Mm. happy about because it's going to kill every herb, make harvesting much easier. Mm. And so you do that. The problem is there are all, all kinds of unintended consequences, one of which is the glyphosate gets into our food. The other, of course, is that when it rains, the glyphosate gets into our water. The third of which is sort of indirect but equally famous, if you kill every weed on your property, including, let's say, for example, milkweed, then you have to understand that the one plant that monarch butterflies eat is milkweed. And when you look at the collapse of the monarch butterfly Mm. population, we're now down to something like 4% of, of normal populations. It's because they have nothing to eat. Now, it's not because we set out to kill their food, but that's a byproduct of killing everything except corn. So it sounds like, you know, uh, you know, genetic modifying has evolved a lot, yes, but the main sort of impetus behind um, a lot of the GMO that we see is not for the, re- the traditional reasons. So 
so the the reasons now that are being used are, are the reasons behind a lot of the GMO that we see are um, you know controlling the food system, making you dependent on the chemicals, um, and so forth, and making more money basically off. Uh, sure. For now, the, I mean, I do want to say, and you, and you inter, your introduction, you, you mentioned this, and I, I do want to make this clear that that I and and other people are somewhat uh, agnostic about the technology. So, you know, it's entirely possible. In my book, I interview quite a number of scientists that do what I consider to be, you know, ethically sound genetic Mm -hmm. research. So, you know, you can, in fact, create a plant using genetic engineering to do, you know, an undeniably beneficial thing, like create a drought-resistant plant that someone, say, for example, cassava, that could be really beneficial in a place like Africa where climate change is creating massive soil problems. But that, and so that work is being done, but the vast majority of what we encounter here in the United States is GMO technology in the service of fast food, processed food, cheap food, you know, low nutritional density food. So, you know, it's to make Doritos, it's not to make, you know, vitamin A, uh, you know, loaded cassava plants or something mm-hmm. like that. That's that's really a shame because it's there's so much promise. Um, right. Let's talk about those great experiments um, after a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. All right, we're chatting more with McKay Jenkins. He's the author of his latest book is called Food Fight, GMOs and the Future of the American Diet. Now, we were just, uh, McKay was actually just bringing up a really great point about how um, GMO can be used um, to to help populations that, you know, for instance, golden rice is oft quoted by um, by many f- proponents of GMO as um, it, a way of um, helping eyesight in Asia. <laughs> there was a... The, Tell me a little bit more about the golden rice experiment and why it was so um, uh, it was so beneficial for people. Well, this is a great it's a great question and it's a great story because uh, there are again this is not corporate this is nonprofit right. researchers who decided you know looking out at the world's health problems what what could they do to solve something big and they found out that there are lots and lots of children in developing countries that uh, have vitamin A deficiency. This is no secret to public health people. So how can you get vitamin A into more diets? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the countries that we're talking about are rice-based diets. And if you're very poor and you live in a rice-based culture, say, for example, the Philippines, uh, you're not getting a lot of vitamin A. You're getting a lot of calories from rice but not a lot of vitamin A. So they designed genetically a, a grain of rice that had the beta-carotene um, beta yeah. in it that once you started digesting it, it would turn into vitamin A and then you'd be on your way. 
So they did this, and Time magazine, along with all of the uh, usual suspects, trumpeted this as the next great salvation for poor children around the world. Now, this is something like 15 or 16 years later, Golden Rice has not yet come to market. And the reason for that is that people around the world are so suspicious of GMOs because, in their mind, GMOs equal American or, some, in some cases, European kind of corporate invasion of their culture. Yeah. Now, but there's another interesting thing, which is kind of weird, and you never would have expected this. The scientists who designed this rice put it, it turns out that like in every, every village in every town, every, every country, they eat a specific kind of rice. So some people like short grain rice, some people like long grain rice. Mm-hmm. And they designed this golden rice, but they put it into the wrong size grain. And so the people said, number one, we don't eat this kind of grain. And number two, rice is white, not golden, and we won't eat it. Mm. And the scientists are like, you need to eat this. And they said, I don't care what you say, we don't eat that. So they did all the great science, but they didn't do any of the anthropology. Hmm. So food, as you well know, is way more than just simply putting calories in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's emotional. It's it's, uh, national. Uh, You know, there's so much at at stake. Um, uh, Let's talk about the your, your adventures in Hawaii. So um, you went to three islands where they had three very different challenges going on um, regarding GMO. Um, and then there was a papaya plant that was, um, it was a highly successful GMO crop. Tell me about that. Yeah, this is, Hawaii was a, was a very interesting place because uh, each island, it turns out, is its own political jurisdiction. Each one has got a county government. And so you had three battles on three different islands. On the big island, there was this decades-long history of, a, again, a publicly funded, I mean, this is a, a professor who designed a GMO papaya that was able to resist a virus that had nearly wiped out the entire papaya uh, population well on done, his island. Yeah. He came up with a GMO mm-hmm. that survived. It was able to fight off these viruses, and the papaya economy re- rebounded, and that was all great, and everybody loved him, except, I should say, small parenthetical, except for people who don't believe in GMOs, and mm. papaya growers didn't want cross-pollination between the GMO papaya and the non-GMO papaya. That was a kind of a minor voice in the negative, but on the whole, people thought this was great. Then, on two other islands, uh, Kauai, uh, they had a gargantuan fight against these companies who were spraying, remember I mentioned before about using the herbicides and the pesticides on these seeds, where, the place where they experiment with all these poisons is in Kauai. So they have these three season, three season long growing seasons there because the, the weather is so warm. And they can spray and 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 they eventually come up with these seeds that can resist these toxins. The problem is, of course, is that Kauai is not a barren island. It's a vibrant community. It's a tourist destination. Lots of people live there. And it turns out that these poisons were drifting into people's homes and into their schools. Mm. And the, the public, the people who live there, were trying to figure out what these chemicals were that were blowing into their schools. And they asked and they asked and they asked, and they had their politicians ask and ask and ask, and the companies would not even reveal what they were using or when or how often or anything. So they had a democratic movement. They had a, you know, the, a referendum, and they had all these demonstrations in the street and all this. And lo and behold, the people managed to pass a law that demanded that these companies tell them what they were spraying. The companies turned around, and even though it was a democratically decided election, 
they sued and said, and actually won the case, and the reason was that uh, it was decided that federal and state law trumps local law. So in other words, in this case, you are not allowed to decide what happens on your own land, which really infuriated a lot Mm -hmm. of the people on Kauai. So then, right around the same time on Maui, they saw what was going on with Kauai, and they decided to try to kick these companies off the island altogether. And the companies, you probably remember some of the, like the anti-labeling movements in places like California. When the companies see that there's a popular movement against GMOs, they get very nervous because GMO is a public relations battle right now. Just like Golden Rice was was purported to be this great savior of GMO technology, if it worked, Mm. the anti-GMO thing, if it starts to take root, then people are going to not only reject GMO papaya, they're going to reject GMO everywhere. So these companies put $6 million into a local referendum on Maui to make sure that there was no more anti-GMO activity, and lo and behold, the people won. Again, this is a bunch of indigenous people, a bunch mm-hmm. of activists. They mm-hmm. beat back $6 million in corporate money right. and then won. So the, the, the law passed, and once again, the company sued, and once again, a federal judge said, you don't get to decide this is a state law or a federal <laughs> law, which is to say a corporate law because the uh-huh. corporations control the bigger governments. This is where this local versus corporate thing really uh, got hot. So that was why I looked at that. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to note that around the world, I mean, U.S., we think of GMOs a lot in the U.S., um, and uh, but around the world, there's there's very different uh, opinions. So there's partial or total bans on GMOs in many countries, including Australia, China, India, Mexico, and Russia. And there's also a huge opposition to it just amongst people um, in other places, too. So in uh, just last year, or actually early 2015, you write, thousands of Polish farmers drove their tractors into the streets of Warsaw to push for a ban on GMO. Um, a lot of this is uh, seems like a, a fight against sort of a cultural imposition um, from the U.S. and GMO, maybe in, in, in concept, over their traditional ways of life. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. part of the, no, you know. It's, it's very good of you to, to parse that out because, you know, there, there are different relationships with GMO here and in Europe and in Africa and in Asia. And if you take them each one at a time, like Europe doesn't want GMOs because Europe has been agriculturally settled for hundreds and hundreds of years. They never remember you're talking about the suburbanization thing. They never did that. They never mm-hmm. destroyed their farms. Like yeah. you, I was in Italy last summer and you can when you're standing like <laughs> you know practically in the Vatican you can see the farms outside of Rome. I mean the, the farm fields are right banged up against cities in Europe still. And to for them to adopt GMOs for them to say okay you know we're going to get rid of all our you know, our cheese farms, or we're going to get rid of our tomato farms, and we're going to replace them with commodity soybeans so that we can feed cheap hamburgers. Like, it doesn't make any sense to anybody over there. Mm. So Europe is against it. South America is an interesting case because this is a little bit reminiscent of the whole Banana Republic period where American companies were going in and forcing Central American farmers and governments to just plant the things that they wanted, like bananas and pineapples, and it became, as you know, the root of all kinds of like civil wars and all that. Now they're doing the same thing in places like Paraguay and Argentina, mm. Brazil. They're trying to get these governments to force people to plant these GMO crops. And so you're, you know, you're seeing deforestation of rainforest, all this to plant GMOs so they can raise beef cattle 
to continue this kind of corporatization and, and monoculture food culture, which is not just in the U.S., but they're trying to export it around the world. Mm, mm-hmm. So the real big, the next big battleground really is, is in South America, where, we're, where you're starting to see corn marching across the continent just like it did here. Wow. Yeah, that'll be something to look out for um, as it unfolds. Um, I wish we had a little bit more time, but I um, I do want to also mention your wonderful experiment that, um, you know, you, your students, your students of English, that is, at the university, um, you made them sort of think about GMOs and work on organic farms for a while. And I love the takeaways that you write about. Um, you said some of them decided that, you know, GMOs are incredibly um you know, valuable, and they have a lot of promise. And anyone who creates something that saves, you know, a, a crop from failure, um, maybe deserves a Nobel Prize. And then you said another group thought, you know, this is um, uh, mostly used in a way, maybe in practice, maybe in in theory, you know, GMOs are okay, but in practice, this has been used, you know, in the, all the wrong ways. And then you said a third group, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I love the third group who came away thinking like, okay, well, this is a problem of our own awareness and maybe ignorance around the food system. That's a real story. It's not whether or not, you know, GMOs are safe or whether they're natural uh, or wrong or unethical in theory, we need to actually just look at ourselves and our relationships with food. Um, is that right, or am I sort of... Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. Okay. And In fact, uh, I mean, you're broadcasting out of New York. I, I spent quite a bit of time with some farmers in upstate New York in Columbia County that said almost what you just said. I mean, a lot of what mm-hmm. I learned, I learned from these brilliant... Uh, organic or biodynamic farmers that say, look, you really want to solve the food problem. What you've got to do is get more people to know personally, not only farmers, but the, the land and the crops that they grow so that you get back into this whole awareness of the combination of food and soil and water and climate and nutrition and community, mm-hmm. all these things that we have basically abandoned. I mean, now we, what we do is we stick a piece of fried chicken in our mouth and we get in our car and drive on to the next thing with not the first thought of where it came from, what its provenance is, what the right. ethics of it are. We just don't care. We just want a fast calorie. And that's a, it's a, you know, a spiritually depleted way to eat. So that's the way I wanted to end was with this notion that food can be really a central part of our entire existence, but we have to reimagine a lot of things to get there. I love that. I love that that's like sort of like the core, one of the core problems, you know, around this whole debate um, is if we kind of have a closer relationship with our food system. Um, that sounds very doable, actually. It sounds more doable than, you know, trying to be a, a, you know, a scholar about these topics and know everything about the sciences of what's healthy and nutritional and so forth. So, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's something we can hopefully all do a little bit yeah. more. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's about all the time we have for today. But thank you so much, McKay. And I hope that everyone takes uh, takes hold of this book. It's uh, called Food Fight. It's just out from Avery. Um, this month, so uh, we're really glad to get you on the air. Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Awesome, and I'll see everyone next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>